and welcome to episode 20, 20, that sounds right, of the 1099 for the week of November 23rd, almost Thanksgiving. I'm actually going to be driving, the day this podcast goes live, I will be in a car with a friend driving for 14 hours from Jacksonville to Pittsburgh. So it's going to be something. It's I am not looking forward to that, but I've been looking forward to this. Uh, this podcast is one that when I f- first started Doing the 1099, I knew I would have this guy on. Uh, I'm joined by Ian Stalker, also known as Magical Time Bean, who is the developer behind both the Soulcaster and Scapegoat series. Ian, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, like I said, I've been looking forward to having you on here for a while. Um, since we last talked, a lot has changed for you. You had the launch of Scapegoat 2. You've uh, had this kind of publishing promotion deal with Double Fine. You've made it on the PlayStation 4 when you initially started on xbox live indie games and from a distance it's been really fun for me to watch because just to kind of move back a bit uh you initially and correct me if i'm wrong you worked on a bunch of nintendo handheld games between like 2002 2010 you're working on 40 different titles and what i first heard about you from was your first kind of independent venture which was a game called soulcaster to get your perspective on that what made you want to begin making an independent project and did you ever expect it to be more than just some weekend thing some hobby you would do on the side while you were having your full-time development job so uh it definitely started as a hobby the whole uh, idea of turning this into like my main full-time job kind of crept up on me Mm -hmm. over uh over a few years so i think it was around 2008 2009 that i was making soulcaster the reason i started it then was um, I found myself with a lot of free time. 2008 was kind of a tough economic year and uh, a couple projects I was supposed to work on as a contractor doing music and sound kind of just got canceled. And uh, it wasn't the end of the world. I had money saved up from past projects, uh, but I decided it would be a good idea to just go to the coffee shop every day for a minimum of one hour and just learn XNA from the ground up and try and make a game. I had a few ideas for games and uh, I didn't like, I didn't plan extensively writing along design doc or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Cause I guess part of my reason for wanting to make games, I mean, it's something I've wanted to do since I was a kid for sure. Um, but I also had kind of like a, idea on how games should be chartered and built that differed from um, a lot of the games that I worked on as a contractor. I remember seeing a lot of kind of the same story happening uh, with those games where despite uh, really talented people working on them, there would be kind of production decisions that I think held the games back. And uh, after making mental notes of all those things for years and complaining about it, uh, I decided to kind of put my ideas to the test. And that's what Soulcaster was. And was music and sound kind of your main base before? You mentioned you had spent a lot of time learning XNA. Uh, did you really have any sort of development chops? Did you know how to build gameplay systems to uh, take art and actually put it into a real video game? How much about that did you have to teach yourself? I had a background in programming before I did any um, video game contracting as a musician. I actually worked as a web database engineer, designer, um, web programmer, and uh, that was in Visual Basic. I had known uh, C and even a little bit of Assembler back then. So I had a programming background uh, throughout my career over like eight years of doing game audio. I taught myself C Sharp and 
uh, use that to actually build a bunch of tools to make my life easier, uh, especially working with like cross-platform Game Boy Advance DS projects, um, file conversion tools, and stuff like that. So I came into XNA with a good knowledge of C Sharp. So it wasn't a like learning from zero type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to pick it up pretty fast, and it's an amazingly easy thing to start with compared to other um, game development frameworks I tried in the past. And I mean, Soulcaster was a success in terms of being a top-rated XNA game. I, that's how I found it. Uh, when when I was starting off, I was you know writing for smaller sites, and a lot of what I would like to do is kind of scroll through these independent channels and find creative games that like maybe weren't getting the attention they deserved. But was the top rating on XNA was that enough to make Soulcaster in your mind a monetary success to in help you kind of encourage to like continue your indie career or was XNA just too difficult to actually kind of make a profit off of so Xbox Live Indie Games was a really interesting monster like uh it was a great way to publish a game onto a console it was it's like kind of a dream to be able to play a game that you made on an actual Xbox and sell it so that other Xbox owners can download and and play it too. I, there's like some special thing about that, especially for me growing up more on console games than PC games. Yeah. Uh, Cause PC is very, it's very easy to self publish. There are a lot of options, but uh, console's always been kind of a walled garden. So it was a great experiment on Microsoft's part. Um, I did not expect it to be kind of as well liked as it was. It didn't turn out to be like a smash economic success. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few exploit games that have made tons of money for the creators. Uh, a lot of them are like Minecraft-based games and maybe oh, some yeah. of the games that got in really early on. Yeah. Um, and so it, it wasn't like that, but by exploit standards, I think I, I made a decent amount of money, like a few thousand at launch. Uh, it was kind of enough to get my attention. And uh, especially with the rating, I thought, okay, maybe I can make a sequel to this it's uh more people liked it than i thought in fact when i submitted it to the creators club just to be published uh i hadn't interacted with anyone on there uh, i just built the game like on my own and i didn't even realize there was a community until i went to publish it and a couple people who reviewed it said like this is actually like kind of a, a really cool game like uh this is different from most of the stuff we see here I mean, how would you personally describe what Soulcaster is? Because, I mean, it's been a while since I played it, but it has that uh, classic look to it. But it's, I know you remember playing different characters and almost setting them down as if it was tower defense. It was a super unique concept. Like what, if you were going to give it a genre, what would you put it in? It's Gauntlet meets tower defense would mm -hmm. be the, the most basic way to put it. It's a dungeon crawler at the heart. So you're, you're going from level to level. It's top down game. And uh, there are hordes of monsters that spawn and you've got to deal with them. Uh, what makes it different is that your main character cannot attack at all, uh, but you can summon uh, like these spiritual warriors who can attack for you. And they kind of have different character classes and different uh, weapons, different abilities. So your placement of them and uh, decision-making for like positioning on the battlefield is where the fun and complexity of the game comes from. And I mean, you made a sequel, uh, which is another, I think I reviewed both of those back in the day and had a really great time with them, but it wasn't really until a scapegoat, uh, where you decided, and once again, correct me if I'm wrong to go full indie. Is that right? Yeah. I started a scapegoat 
uh, it wasn't called that from the beginning. It was just kind of a new project, uh, I think on January 1st, 2011. And so that was going to be my test to see if I went full time because uh, I during Soulcaster 1 and 2, uh, eventually work picked back up for uh, for music contracting. Like I worked on Monster Tail and I worked on a couple other games for EA. Mm. Um, and so when I started Scapegoat, it was like, I'm not taking on any audio projects during this time. I'm going to just uh, focus on this game and see if I actually like the lifestyle of making games like all day, every day. And that would be a first step to see if it was actually a good full-time thing. Because if I liked doing it, then I can worry about how do we make money with it. But at first it was just like, pick any game concept. Let's not think about commercial liability. And I didn't even write any sort of design ideas for this. It started (laughs) as like kind of an exercise to clone a DOS game called Jetpack. Mm. uh, Because I had an idea for a couple changes to that. And uh, it just evolved and took about 10 months total uh, of development time. Uh, two questions. First, were there any other names you mentioned it wasn't always called a scapegoat? What was it called before? Because I love the name of scapegoat, but I want to know what else was like rolling around in your head. Well, I had to come up with a project title for Visual Studio uh, in like, you know, a folder on my hard drive. So I chose the word Bastille, okay. uh, like prison and... Um, I knew that I could not have that as the game's title because it's too close to Bastion and uh, isn't very, like, I think, indicative of what the game is. Mm. Um, So, yeah, Escapegoat came along a few months into development and I picked the title and then themed the game after that. Like, the goat protagonist came after the title. Yeah, it's a a great protagonist. It's it's the goat and the the mouse with the the magician's hat. It's, I mean, I've really liked that game and it turned out really well did it initially just to refresh my memory was it initially just on xbox live indie like was that where that started before it reached other platforms yeah uh, my first three games were just on xplig and i didn't do the pc ports until after i had three games done you mentioned how you you built a community um the soulcast community started to come up um and then a scapegoat started to kind of get some traction do you think a lot of and this is something i was talking to eric s Musen about he was mentioning how disco dodgeball was a success, but not the mass appeal success. You know, he always hoped it would be, but he felt that he built a community, built goodwill, and it was so well received that his next game would do better because now he is the disco dodgeball guy. Do you think your initial releases kind of did that? You became the Soulcaster guy, the Escapegoat guy, and that's what kind of you, you could parlay that into a bigger amount of buzz for Scapegoat Two. I would say that's true to some extent, but a very small extent, actually. Like, I I never had a large following from my games. Xplig's reach is, is pretty small to begin with. And then um, these are kind of niche titles with, like, retro graphics. They weren't available on more than one platform, like, no PC versions or anything. So the number of people that even know about Soulcaster 1 and 2 is incredibly small. If you search YouTube for Let's Plays of it, like, I bet there wasn't one made in the last six months. It's just uh, completely flying under the radar, which I'm actually fine with right now because it'll make the third Soulcaster game seem like brand new and mm. it reduces the chance of some, like, I don't know, mobile game company ripping off the concept and <laughs> making their own version. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't like I could build up a strong community and my abilities to, like, create a mailing list and keep people online and keep people informed are 
they're just not that great. It's so time consuming. And I've always just put development first. That's a, not great for business because like the promotion of the game is so much more important than the content of the game these days. So like, yeah, it's been a little bit of a buildup, but I can't tell you how many people, uh, you know, when Escape Goat 2 came out, knew about the first Escape Goat, loved it, but had no idea there was a sequel coming and found out about it like three weeks after it launched. <laughs> it would have been great if all those people had like bought it on day one and reviewed it on day one. Yeah, and, and started talking about it and get that buzz rolling. Yeah. Are you uh, a single person studio that you contract some of your artwork out or have you kind of expanded? I guess you could say I'm still a single person studio because like the company really is just me. Um, but starting with Escape Goat 2, like that was a collaboration. Mm. And um, Randy and Caitlin and I built this game. Like uh, Caitlin's main role was doing a lot of the uh, programming work that I simply was not capable of learning how to do. Uh, and uh, she helped out with the, the editor and a lot of miscellaneous stuff that was like... Uh, supremely helpful in filling in gaps of my like time and abilities as a programmer. Um, and then Randy did hundred percent of the artwork, including the art direction. It wasn't like we formed a new company based on this. I just kept on the company and then it was like a revenue share agreement. And I, I, once again, going back to disco dodgeball, I remember him saying a very similar thing. When you mentioned promotion, uh, when you're either a very small studio or a one man studio, the, the concept of after you're spending, you know, all day, creating different gameplay systems and making sure this art looks fine and everything like that to get right off of that and do promotion. It's, it's almost an, an insurmountable task. Like it's, it's, it's impossible or near impossible to be a smaller one man studio and also be able to effectively and efficiently promote the game. Because I mean, you don't have, you don't have some degree in marketing and advertising. It's, it's a different skill entirely. So have you ever considered bringing maybe someone else on to do that work or uh i know when we'll get into this in a second i mean you you've worked you, you've worked with double fine um but was there before that was there ever any kind of thought to bring someone else on for that exact task um yeah that's a, a tricky thing like again you know expanding into like the company suddenly having more people on the payroll than just me or splitting up equity in the company that's that's a pretty big decision and like part of that is that the income from the games needs to be able to support like you have two mouths to feed then yeah and um that's that's kind of been a, a setback for bringing more people online i've done kind of contract consulting like bought people's time to get uh you mentioned getting like a degree in marketing we could say just like kind of fast tracking the most basic things for uh promoting a game i've learned from uh, a few different people on those topics mm -hmm. it really comes down to the time and yeah you're totally right like these days uh you cannot just be one person unless you just take like the time to develop the game and then the game is locked and you spend the next full year promoting the game once it's done yeah uh and i really am not super interested in that not only because uh like promoting the game is not really a strong skill set of mine but also because uh it delays the launch for like a year it's you know yet another year i'm not working on the next game uh or getting income from the game i spent so long building and that's one of the major things i think what you said right there is the idea of not getting that income because i mean one of the scariest things and it had to be kind of you know terrifying for you is when you start working on a scapegoat 
you're betting on yourself. You're saying like, I'm going to go indie now. And if this, if this misses, like, of course it's going to, if, if, if a lot of people enjoy the game, it's definitely, uh, fulfilling and it's, it's something that was great to do and you're happy you released it. But if it misses commercially, that has to be hard to swallow. So, I mean, how scary was it betting on yourself that way, going fully indie and saying like, well, here we go. Like from now on, this is my income source. Well, Scapegoat 1 was really low pressure because I actually went into it not expecting to make money with it. It was a really exotic idea. And when I was finishing it up and doing the final rounds of playtesting with friends, uh, I'd actually fallen back and punted on the design. It was originally supposed to be this uh, explorable world with persistent items and uh, kind of a Metroid type of game. And uh, the problems with that, the main one being that backtracking through puzzles is like incredibly tedious. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. And another one being that like all the rooms were no longer interchangeable. You had to look at where your entrance and exit points were in the room and uh, the puzzle had to be set up. So you couldn't actually like if one puzzle was determined to be too difficult for the first level, uh, you couldn't easily move it into any position in the in a later level it was so locked into where it was in the world uh so it was kind of a fallback where i was just like okay it's just going to be room after room of puzzles intact puzzles and they're interchangeable i can move them around to adjust the difficulty curve um too bad about the exploring thing but that's just what it's going to be and so i was a little bit disappointed by that Uh, i felt like i couldn't accomplish the game i set out to accomplish And so when I was finishing it up, I didn't have any expectations uh, that it would do well. But my brother told me, like, this is so much better than Soulcaster. This is like, you've learned a lot from design. This is going to be more popular. And he was right. It was definitely more popular than Soulcaster. It felt like, uh, once again, I had played each of your games, you know, from Soulcaster 1 and Soulcaster 2 to Escape Goat 1. And it felt like you were learning more and more from each game. Like, you could see the like tangible improvements from the experience you had. And that's the kind of thing that got Double Fine's attention. So it was such a cool story, once again, to see you on that video with Tim Schafer to first kind of hear about that announcement. Uh, And you were one of the first, if not the first, indie games that Double Fine was really promoting and publishing in that way. So I I don't know the full story. So how did that relationship come about? And when in the process uh, of Escape Goat 2's development did... Double Fine start helping you out? So Double Fine is a very, very indie-friendly, very generous company. Like, that's just kind of the root of it all. And um, there was a game jam that was... uh, How long? I can't remember which January this was. If it was, like, (laughs) last year's January. uh, I guess it was, because, yeah, Scapegoat 2 came out last year. So, uh, yeah, about almost two years ago, they hosted a month-long kind of game jam where they just let us use one of their um, kind of dormant office spaces. And I think there were about 15 of us uh, working on various projects. It was originally going to be the finish your damn game jam because we all had games in development that were like lagging behind and, you know, we needed to get these things out the door. We we renamed it the Omega Jam uh, for our live streams and stuff like that. But yeah, Escape Goat 2, Randy and I worked on it there and uh, got really far. We didn't finish it during the jam, but we got it so close. And um, so it was able to be like pushed out the door in March. We kind of delayed it a couple times leading up to that. Uh, the main reason for the delays was it actually started to get more attention. Like 
uh, we got a PAX 10 selection, which was enormous. Yeah. Like, uh, and that was kind of like a, Oh, maybe we should take some more time and polish this up. Like we've all heard about these games that are in development for uh, a long time. Sometimes they're delayed for years, but it's like the extra polish is what turns it into a hit game because like, it's all of a sudden just that much better and it's worth it to put in the extra time in those cases. So that was the reasoning behind delaying it. Uh, how did Double Fine get interested in Escape Go 2? Well, like those guys came by the, uh, the jam like on Friday evenings every now and then for just hanging out, having beers. Uh, and then one of the days, uh, Tim Schaefer shows up kind of ahead of everyone else and I'm working on a scapegoat and he's like, Oh, what's, what's this? And he just like sits down to play it. And yeah, I remember my hands kind of shaking during that time <laughs> uh, because I'm not sure what he's going to say, but he keeps playing it for like probably 15 minutes and uh, says that it's pretty cool. And I, you know, I just, I took that as a great compliment, uh, but didn't really um, think about it further than that. But at an event, kind of right before GDC, maybe a month and a half later, another Double Fine employee who was kind of getting started to set up the uh, whole concept of Double Fine Presents was playing and was like, we got to get this game. Like, let's do this as the first Double Fine Presents game. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it for like 24 hours, asked everyone I knew, because we'd kind of turned down publishing offers up until then. Nothing really seemed like a good idea uh, and we were just going forward with self-publishing. But then here was this surprise publishing offer like five days before our launch. And it's like, what do we do? And pretty much everyone I asked about it was like, you'd be stupid to not do this. Like, this is uh, so much more visibility than you're going to get on your own. And it's a media point. Uh, just, just go for it. And their terms were incredibly generous, like way better than what other publishers had offered. Mm. So um, yeah, that's how it, started and we got to shoot the video like talk about generous the weekend in between gdc and the game's launch which was wow. on the monday after that uh that saturday and sunday was spent shooting and editing that video it was like no recovery time from gdc we just went straight into that to get stuff ready for launch and uh yeah that was that was an incredibly surreal weekend yeah. I, I mean it, it has to be and it's i mean just having Tim Schafer in general, sitting there and playing your game, first off. You mentioned how cool it is when you see your game on a console. I mean, that has to be a whole new level of seeing this, you know, very respected figure playing your game and saying how cool it is. And and was the scapegoat to is that was that launch on Steam? Yes. Uh that was actually the first place that okay. it launched. It never came to Xbox Live indie games or Xbox at all. Uh so it's just a PS4 and Steam game. Oh well, um PC game. It's on several other uh, PC portals as well, like Humble and Cog. Then here's the big question. So it's hard to compare the numbers of Scapegoat and Scapegoat 2 because you look at Scapegoat being on you know X this Xbox Live Indie service and Scapegoat 2 both having the double fine push and starting on a platform with a stronger user base. But let's compare it anyway. How how much bigger was that launch for you, just in terms of sales? Like how much more attention did that get? Uh, scapegoat 2 versus scapegoat 1 yes so we got more attention that's for sure um but here's the thing like i i've kind of put off writing an extensive article about this whole backstory but i can definitely uh, talk about it here mm -hmm. so the escapegoat 2 launch like day one uh did horribly it was awful really because uh yeah uh 
the main thing, there were several things that worked against us. One of them was that it, uh, I picked this release date based on nothing else coming out on Steam that day. And these days it's unheard of to think of a day without a new Steam yeah, title because same. there's like 10 new ones every day. But back then there were days with nothing. Uh, and that one was like a dead zone. So I'm like, that sounds perfect. Uh, but I learned why that's a dead zone is because the Monday after GDC, uh, nobody wants to do anything. The press is not interested in uh, covering anything and it's just like a very slow time. Mm. So uh, all of my push to get like day one coverage from the press, I don't know if I got a single article on oh my God. day one. It was just for that basic reason. Another reason is that my press release skills are just not quite there. It was like, I just fired out to like 70 or so outlets and tried to establish like a communication, but I didn't uh, spend enough time. Like I only spent maybe three full days on that. It needed to be like two straight weeks of establishing, like getting verbal agreements from people for day one and like giving them exclusive content and all of this stuff. Uh, so it just, it was a bad timing uh for the game to launch to compound it steam went down for i would say more than half the day Jesus. and i took screenshots of uh some of the stuff like search results for a scapegoat nothing found uh the sales graph for the first day which shows by hour uh one hour there would be like 60 sales and then the next three hours there would be just zero oh. which meant like nobody could even find it and i don't know i uh, part of me thinks that that kind of set things off permanently for us because people would go to the forums to see if there was any buzz about the game and the forums were mostly empty because no one could be on Steam. Uh, we didn't really reach any sort of charts because we missed our window to get on the charts. Uh, we actually had a better second week than a first week because Double Fine said it, uh, stepped in. They did a coupon drop uh, for like past owners of stacking and Escape Goat One, and that gave us a bigger bump than our launch. Actually, wow. after that, did did ever you said the second week was better, but it did it start to pick up after you know people started? Uh, I know like uh, GameSpot reviewed it, and some other outlets started to review it. Did that start to help it build up over time, or did it never, like you said, never really take off? So it's really interesting what sort of stuff influences sales these days. Um, I have a lot of friends in like the games media, like blogs and you know um, websites. They uh, do really great work, but I have to say that the impact that those things have is so minimal on sales. Uh, I'm not really sure entirely why, but uh, compared to prominent Let's Plays, it's uh, just a world of difference. So it wasn't until we got some Let's Play coverage that um, that gave us some sales bumps. It was like the launch day was worth a little bit, and then there was nothing else to draw uh, people to the game until we got a couple Let's Plays. Uh, Northern Lion did a Let's Play, and that gave us some sales. And then the big one was Game Grumps, which was just like an enormous bump in sales for like five straight days. It oh, really? Crazy. Like uh, yeah. compared to the launch week, how many how many times higher was that just after the game grumps? Yeah, it was probably 10 times as much as our wow. launch week, maybe more. Uh, I can't even remember the exact numbers, but it's, uh, yeah, it's worth so much more. In terms of critically, Escape Go 2 did well. A lot of people really enjoy that game. But when you now when you look back at it, do you feel like, even though it didn't go exactly as planned in terms of steam going down and kind of having that that not enough media attention at the start, do you still consider that game a success? In terms of the product in itself, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of how it turned out. Like 
there's just no question it is it met my standards it went above my usual level of standards um and polish and uh yeah there are people who got really into it especially in the speedrunning community like that is so important to me mm. uh i made the game very speedrunner friendly and like people latched onto it and yeah to get the pax 10 selection to get double finds attention the doors that this game opened for me like they're just people in important places who fell in love with the game at twitch um at humble and you know game grumps stuff like that uh and that that was like the real value of the game the sales are kind of just based on uh being in bundles and when the various seasonal sales happen on steam and gog and stuff like that i mean the those two sources are probably 98% of revenue. Day-to-day -day mm. sales are um, almost nothing. They're just like a trickle. That's uh, so insane. Yeah. I, I think that most people have this experience. Yeah. Uh, unless you're on like the top charts perpetually, there are some games that are just kind of evergreen on Steam and they probably have really good day-to-day -day sales. But um, customers love seeing that, that strike-through price with the green tag. Yeah. Uh, it just really gets them to buy stuff. It, it's it's just so. And we going back to this conversation we had about how difficult it is to make a game and then understand how to correctly market it. It's even harder today because not to sound like an old person, but back in the day, you can kind of look at well, I gotta you know make sure I'm hitting these main outlets. I gotta hit the GameSpot, the IGN, the, the you know back then GamePro, uh, EGM. But now you're worried, like you said, you need to make your game speedrun friendly. You need to make your game uh sort of lend itself to a let's play or to a twitch stream you need to worry about uh all these different sources when the sales are going live i mean just the different e or like esports some games or multiplayer games are sort of uh designing themselves so that they can be in esports there are so many different things you have to think about and so many different people you need to get in touch with that i don't even know i don't know how that has to be overwhelming for you yeah, and for that reason, uh, because I am still, you know, kind of doing it all on my own uh, in terms of marketing and sales as well as the production. Yeah, my current philosophy on this problem is that uh, there is no way I can personally promote the game enough to make it successful. Like, there's just no way I can reach that many people. I'm not an influencer on Twitter. Uh, I don't have like a huge subscriber base on YouTube or a mailing list of 50,000 people. Like uh, I just don't have the outreach to do it on my own. So what I have to do is charter the game to be friendly to people who will do the promotion for me. And these days that means let's players. It's like making the game let's play friendly is a way of kind of um, increasing the chances of getting vis visibility on there. Uh, Cause if someone with a quarter million subscribers on YouTube likes the game then they're going to be able to do a thousand times as much promotion as i could ever do on my own i did see that the promotions start to kick back up because your game came out in ps4 and i remember the playstation twitter account which has you know millions of followers starting to tweet about a scapegoat uh which was once again really cool to see so was that kind of a a second life for a scapegoat too because you're avoiding now that the steam being down the lack of press at that point it has a lot of people might have, for the first time, heard about Escape Goat 2 from being on PS4. So was that a bigger launch for you than PC? No, it's actually not nearly as good. Uh, that was kind of a gut punch, actually, for Randy and me, because it was we were kind of looking at that as a, a chance for a second life of the product. It's like maybe this being a more console and controller type of game, it can find 
uh, its people on console and like kind of make up for what went wrong for the PC launch. And we did have a lot going for us going in. Um, Sony actually guaranteed us a ton of dashboard placement, which I know from Xplague is like so incredibly valuable for mm. sales. Um, and yeah, you know, like there were fans of the game at Sony that uh, wanted to give it a, a strong launch. I got to make my own post on the PlayStation blog and uh, everything. But I think the main issue with the scapegoat too is uh, as much as I like looked at it as uh, how can I make this more a more commercially viable version of a scapegoat one? It's going to be like up the graphics, make it longer, um, just have more polish and make it more attractive in the screenshots and videos. Uh, none of that really addressed the issue, which is it's 2014. How many puzzle platformers are on the charts on either PS4 or PC? Yeah. Like zero. <laughs> like, uh, top 100. It's just, it's not there. Uh, it's, it just kind of has some fundamental problems with it for let's play ability as well. Uh, it's great for speed running, but what it's not good for are the kind of casual chat, uh, banter comedy let's plays, um, because of the amount of concentration it requires to like solve the puzzles. It's if you're just kind of, uh, talking about random stuff or joking around about what's happening in the game you kind of reach a standstill because you have to stop and think about the puzzle, which means you stop talking, which means your audience who's expecting like more of a chat thing is going to get bored with it and request other games. Uh, so yeah, kind of the problems that it ran into are based on just like it's, uh, inherent problems with the genre. An analogy I like to use is that I made an excellent jazz album <laughs> and the people that love jazz, like, freaking love but it's not going to be something that gets radio play besides like the jazz station it's not going to chart it's not going to be top 40 uh and that's just kind of how it is when i see so many indie game screenshots on on twitter you know for screenshot saturday and uh i get links you know from friends and stuff like that so many of them are these platformer type games and i can't help but wonder like how many of them are really going to find their audience like it's kind of an uphill battle to get those games attention because the average steam customer like is not interested in platformers like really it's just such a small niche yeah and i um i think it was willow neal uh, i was talking about uh, this last week he i had been sent a game called planet of the eyes on pc i'm not sure if you had a chance to play it it is a a puzzle platformer and extremely well-made beautiful game but i think he ran into a very similar situation as you where he did this one thing very, very well, but the audience just wasn't there or they've seen too many of these. Does, when you look at that now, does, that, does this understanding, this experience you have from releasing a scapegoat 2 and uh, not grabbing as much attention as uh, you wanted, is, does that shape how you develop games moving forward? Or for you, are you okay making you know, games you like, games like genre in genres you enjoy, and having enough success to keep going or for you are you kind of looking back and be like well now i need to, i need to go <laughs> i need to go make a minecraft clone i need to go make a survival game like arc or something like that let's uh let's call it a balance <laughs> like <laughs> i have not decided to go into the match three world or you know look at uh yeah you know procedural survival games that are doing so well on steam and have been for years uh i didn't go in to see like 
okay, my next game is going to be based on the top five games on Steam or on PS4. Uh, what I did was look at, okay, what are what were some of the things that I could have done better even within a scapegoat too? Like minor changes I could have made that would have made a difference. Um, but more looking at like thinking of things in terms of what can I get uh, Let's Players interested in? Mm-hmm. What makes a good Let's Playable game? And I upped my Let's Play diet by uh, a ton. And I have a lot of channels that are favorites that I check almost every video for. Um, you know, something to check out while kind of unwinding, having a beer at the end of the day. And yeah, I've kind of got my internal list running of things that make for a good Let's Playable game. And I don't think that it's pandering to this market, like compromising values. I think of it as like catering to a market and just focusing on things that make the game fun to watch. And those, a lot of those things are incidentally things that make the game more enjoyable. You know, like going back to playing a one player game with friends over like if it's entertaining for the friends to watch beyond just entertaining for the player to play like that's a pretty good game that's yeah. going to get a lot of attention yeah it's it's not yeah i don't think it's at all compromising like your ideals are compromising your development philosophy it's for me it's if i was gonna make a comparison to writing it's I can't just be a traditional writer now. Uh, with you have to be able to have a voice on a podcast, have a voice on a let's play, be able to be comfortable on video, be able to just you you need to adopt and and adapt to the new environment and get these new skills. So I, I think it makes it more marketable without you know suddenly a scapegoat. You can also hit blocks with a pickaxe or something like that. Like you're not going to change the game, which you might want to keep that idea in the back of your head, but I'm saying it's, it's not going to change what the game is. It's just going to, like you said, adjust it and adapt it in a way where it becomes more appealing to that group of people, which let's be honest, the, that group of people determines the success of your game. So it makes sense why you do something like that. Going back really quickly to double fine. Is that relationship, still on the table so let's say your new game comes out sometime in 2016 are you still in contact with double fine where they can continue to promote it or was that just a one game deal oh it's um i would say it's an ongoing thing and that i see those guys um like at least every couple weeks sometimes every week uh they still have some space for us to go in and work like i guess that's one of the perks of being a double fine presents game is uh, they have some some free desk space and uh yeah that's where I've been going to work on Soulcaster from time to time because it's a real cool change of pace from my office, uh, which is closer to my house. So, uh, yeah, it's ongoing. They're totally aware that there's a new Soulcaster coming out. Uh, what they've seen has been kind of early prototypes. And so it's it's not like anyone can make a decision about um, whether this would be a good Double Fine Presents game or whether the timing would work out for them. But uh they will definitely be seeing the game as it develops and we'll be continuing a conversation about that. You had mentioned before that Soulcaster 1 and 2, maybe not, like there's a, there's a community, but not that many people have played it. Is there any fear in calling it Soulcaster 3? Or Because sometimes you have that thing where someone says, oh, Soulcaster 3, I've never heard of the first two. Should, do I need to play those first to understand what's going on? Is there ever a moment where you're sitting there like, what if I call this Soulcaster colon reborn or Soulcaster colon Minecraft? Like, is there something there where you might consider? I, I don't want you to give away everything because you're still developing this thing. But is Soulcaster three a name set in stone, or is there something else you have in mind? 
I'm so impressed that you actually nailed this because yes, <laughs> uh, Soulcaster Three I think is not a good title. Mm. Uh, one of the things I would say I learned from Escape Goat Two is that the two in the title is actually a negative. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it helps if you have a brand on the size of uh, I don't know PlayStation, then you can put a, a number in there. But uh, even like Hollywood has abandoned numbers uh, and AAA has largely abandoned numbers. Like Call of Duty now has like these various uh, sub franchises and occasionally they'll put in a number there, but like has to be an enormous franchise with it's like, you just want the, if all the existing customers and maybe a few people buy into this, you're uh, a few extra people buy into this, you'll be set. Yeah. But if you're not coming from a, position of a really strong brand like a scapegoat one uh then the two like some of the problems with that is uh for indie games like one of the reasons we get attention in the media is for innovation putting a two means there's nothing new here this is like a continuation mm. yeah this is uh so, working on existing systems yeah it's a wet blanket towards the like here's something fresh and exciting uh, another big problem, I saw this in the forums a lot, people would ask, do I need to play the first one to understand the second one? And for every person that asks on the forum, there's got to be 100 people that just passes it by because they never played the first one. Mm. Um, I, I think that calling it Soulcaster 3 would be a mistake. Uh, so it's funny you should mention Soulcaster Reborn. That was the front runner for a while. It might oh, even look at this. be back in favor. <laughs> but Reborn has like... Uh, a friend of mine suggested that maybe a year ago and in that time we've got dota reborn and i think there's been like four other reborns uh, happening and i think that might be overused uh but that that's a great question should it be something that's heavily used and people are familiar with or do people actually do people care about how much it's used is there something comforting in seeing like a, a word like resurrection or um like anything like that the title is a, a thing that we've kind of put in the freezer uh, but we've had tons of ideas for titles one idea is just to call it soulcaster just do the castlevania thing oh and just yeah say like, we're we're starting over like yeah there were these other games but uh we're paving over that because uh, it is a really good title i love the title mm -hmm. but it's like do we um do we change it? Do we do a Demon Souls to Dark Souls kind of mutation? I couldn't really think of anything, especially because the word soul and the word caster have been used in so many game titles and death metal bands. And <laughs> you Google just about anything, you can come up with adding onto those words and it's been taken. It's amazing how much, I mean, a title determines so much. Uh, it, it's, it's such an important thing. And that has to be a lot of, yeah, a lot of discussion on that about what you'd want to do. Because even if you do, like, if you do Reborn, or people would think it is like some sort of HD Reborn version of the original Soulcaster, do they think it is a prequel? Or, like, it's, it has to be a weird kind of balance you're working on with that. But how, even if the title isn't done, how far into development are you right now? In your mind, if you had to put a percentage on it, where are you at with Soulcaster, uh, rest of the title forthcoming? I'd say we're somewhere between 40 and 70% mm. there. It's a really good question. Like, uh, it doesn't matter how much experience I have making games, the length of time it, it takes to make features and the success rate of new ideas is still like really hard to predict. Uh, I just, I changed around lighting just yesterday to make it dramatically different. And I think, uh, 
it's a really positive change. It kind of came out of a idea that Randy had for how to approach lighting in a unique way. And at first I thought, okay, this would take like two weeks. I have to put this off until some other stuff is done. But then just an idea came to me while I was walking to get coffee. And then I came back and sat down and banged it out in 45 minutes and it was working. Well, (laughs) Uh, and then other stuff seems so simple, like sprite sorting, uh, like just making sure stuff in the foreground is always drawn above stuff in the background. And, uh, for a few different reasons, that's been a nightmare that's just consumed weeks. When you look at, you know, the newest Soulcaster, is this going to be, once again, you're not done and a lot of things can change, but is this going to be a similar jump from a scapegoat one to a scapegoat two where it is similar idea, but uh, a prettier game, a longer game, a more maybe complex game, or are you considering turning it into an even more different direction? And are you using a lot of those lessons from Scapegoat 2, what we talked about with being more let's play friendly, being something about with speed running? Are you taking a lot of those same lessons and pouring them into the new, new Soulcaster? Yes, we're kind of sacrificing the speed runnability of the game by making it procedural. Uh, and that's in the service of making. Uh, something that's very let's playable it works out really well for a series i think northern lion has done over a thousand binding of isaac runs Mm. uh it's something where if you if your viewers latch on to this game then it can keep it fresh for a long time not just that but that's just something that's very in vogue on steam and um in the indie community like it's something that everyone talks about and it's almost considered to be like uh cliche like oh everyone's doing procedural but if you look at indie games coming out there are not a lot of new procedural games like i think part of it is that they're um they're fun to develop but hard to get right mm-hmm. and uh so a lot of them stay in development or change how they're procedural and the procedural just means so many different things like i have my idea of how that's going to play into the game like if i'm borrowing roguelike elements like which things do i borrow and how does it all fit together so uh yeah my concept of procedural is just going to be different from any other game i think it will have randomized levels it'll have randomized monsters and item locations uh everyone will be every run will be like this new day this new opportunity to try some new strategy and to see what the game throws at you and test your skills and knowledge of the game and see how much further you can get than the last run uh so that's kind of that's the biggest departure from the first two Soulcaster games uh so i've had to learn how procedural level building works it's actually my favorite part of making this game i mm. wish i could spend more time on that uh, <laughs> and less time on like the rendering engine and stuff like that but um yeah it's that's probably the biggest change the style of graphics will change dramatically probably even more so than the escape goat one to escape goat two change uh, it will be in high res uh but i can't really fully say because some things are in flux and i kind of want to do a reveal uh b- before like saying exactly what the changes have been but yeah. i think so far it's looking amazing uh what other changes I think just the level of complexity, a lot more RPG type stuff. Uh, there were really simple upgrades in Soulcaster 1 and 2. It's just like level 1, 2, 3, 4 of damage for the arrow. And mm. it's just, you know, you, it was very straightforward like that. But uh, in this game, I'm exploring like uh, slotted inventory and upgrades of individual items and active use items and uh, summoning of 
different types of creatures and mind control of enemies and uh, a lot of other stuff to increase the complexity of the game. Yeah. And you had mentioned that Escape Goat 2 had opened, you know, maybe it's the greatest accomplishment was opening so many new doors for you is when the new Soulcaster comes out. Are you kind of planning on that being a launch on Steam, PS4, and maybe even Xbox One? I haven't decided what platform it will lead on. Like, uh, it's currently very much a PC game Mm because that's just how it's being developed, like all my other games. Uh, XNA can be ported to PS4. Uh, there are many games that are doing this, and that's what happened with Escape Go 2. So, yeah, PS4 is totally an option, and I think it's a great uh, advantage I have that that's kind of still a walled garden with relatively few releases. Um, and I think this game would actually do pretty well there, uh, especially compared to Escape Go 2. So, yeah, once things are in a showable state, I'll definitely be talking to Sony. Um, I think that these days you kind of have to pick between. Um, Xbox One and PS4 because either one is going to want an exclusive for obvious reasons. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, last I checked, it's actually uh, ironically harder to get an XNA game on Xbox One. I think it (laughs) might be possible, but uh, they totally abandoned XNA and was just like, okay, yeah, you're doing C++ and DirectX as, uh, you know, as if it's 2005. So that's kind of a tragedy. Uh, But there still might be a way to get the game on Xbox One if if that's where I decide to go with it. Yeah, and one more thing, I uh, I know a lot of indie games either you know over time they go on PS Plus or maybe even they launch on PS Plus. Would that ever be something you were interested in doing? Kind of like a promotion with Sony where you agree on some sort of terms and they give away the game to PS Plus subscribers. Yeah, I would totally be open to uh, talking about that. I've I've mentioned it a couple times as like something I'm interested in, but I haven't followed up a lot. Mainly just being so head down working on uh, Soulcaster that like the back catalog has not gotten a lot of attention. But uh, I think that would I'd be down to do that uh, for the right like buyout price. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like sacrificing any sort of sales for a while. Yeah, uh, but it would be you know really cool to get that amount of publicity to just like, okay, everyone gets to play this. And, yeah. Um, who knows could even feed into sales of Soulcaster if they were somehow linked. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, it's something that if you do it, I would love to talk to you about it because I've always wanted to know what that exact deal is like, how that process goes and what happens if let's say like rocket league that goes free and that explodes and that is like the most played game like do you get a weird bonus does something like that happen so i would love to hear about that if you do manage to talk to sony uh during the end of these podcasts i always like to kind of do a final tip and uh just something that people can kind of take away and maybe work start working on i don't know next week start working on two weeks from now because a lot of this stuff if you're doing either indie development or you're doing freelance it, it takes like one or two steps to get the ball rolling uh, and for me, this is very much relates to our conversation. Um, if you ever do see, if you're, if you're a writer and you want to, uh, pitch something, a really good idea is to just look around back then it was, you know, Xbox live indie games, finding something creative, original and talking to the dev. Now it's probably more on steam because a lot of those smaller games start out in early access, start out somehow somewhere on steam. Um, if you see something creative and different, uh, it's very beneficial for you as a freelancer to contact that dev, uh, see if you can get a code and see if you can review that game or see if you can write about that game in some capacity. I mean, I reviewed all of your games coming out and uh, we did 
this feels like years ago, but it wasn't that long ago, we did a feature for Paste kind of about this, the journey you had taken from Xbox Live Indie Games to eventually being in uh, the PAX 10. And I think this was right around the time you had the Double Fine deal or maybe right before. But uh, it was a cool opportunity for both of us, for me to be able to write for the different sites and for you to be able to kind of spread the word about your games. So when you're an up and coming freelancer, it's not the smartest to go and email Activision or go and email EA and be like, let's talk about Battlefield. You're not going to rank with those people yet. But to go to somewhere small and find these creative ideas that deserve attention, it's something I did with Disco Dodgeball too. Uh, It's a really good route to getting your foot in the door and being able to give ideas that you believe in and games that you enjoy uh, the attention they deserve. So for me, that's my tip this week, which totally relates to a lot of this conversation. So Ian, I kind of sprung this on you before, but anything you kind of want to give out to people who maybe want to get in development and don't exactly know where to start? Sure. Um, I would say to number one, just disregard the stuff that I mentioned in this podcast about like the marketing and uh, (laughs) making it let's playable and all of that stuff. I don't think that's a very good place to start because it's actually something that really slows down development of this current project, which is like kind of the nagging question of, oh, you know, this new thing, will other people like it rather than just following your heart with every decision and being like, will I like it? Mm -hmm. Uh, So for that reason, starting making a game entirely on your own, no outside help, and picking the project uh, that will fit your current skill set. So if you're a great artist, you can make an art-heavy game. If you're uh, not so great of an artist like myself, then make something with sprite art or find a way to make it minimalist. Uh, rather than set out to make like, okay, this MMO RPG with 3D and like all this stuff. Um, so definitely like pick something that you are excited to make and don't think about the commercial viability at first just get through the process of producing a game and um, see how that works out for you and see how other people like it if other people like it and you plan to pursue that as a career that's this enormous leap that is just changes things so dramatically Uh, and then you can start to worry about all the other stuff. But to start, uh, definitely don't let that cloud your thinking. If you don't know how to program, learn to program. That's my number one tip that I tell everyone. Like, uh, Probably the best language to learn is C-sharp because even though it's a massive language with tons of features, you can get by only knowing 10% of them. And uh, there are some really powerful tools that use C-sharp like Unity, which just about all my friends use. I I guess that's my tip. Yeah. Every time I talk to a developer recently too, I start thinking like, man, maybe I should learn C sharp and consider doing something in unity. It's one of those things where it's like, eh, you know, it, it could be a fun little side project and who knows where it goes, but it's fun stuff. Let me tell you. Yeah. It's going to be one of those time consuming hobbies that I'm going to get into soon. I'm, I'm excited about it, but uh, Ian, it's, it's always great to talk to you and it's always fun. Once again, to you were probably the first uh, indie dev that's related to my tip that I reached out in that way and was like, Hey, I want to talk about your games and it's just been so much fun to see you know you with double fine you on a uh, playstation 4 how cool a scapegoat 2 turned out and i am looking forward to the new soulcaster uh which i can't wait for the title first off but i'm looking forward to the new soulcaster <laughs> as much as just about any other game right now because it's it's been fun to follow this so i yeah, really nice, appreciate no problem at all i really appreciate you appreciate you coming on and i you gave some great advice here and i can't wait for your new game sweet well yeah thanks for having me on again Uh, No problem at all. And thanks uh, everyone for listening and hopefully tune back in next week for the next episode of the 1099.